Hi, it's UAP. Welcome to the very first episode of Let's Talk Synth Seriously. In this podcast, you'll get detailed interviews with your favorite artists from different synth-driven genres such as synthwave, retrowave, synth-pop and related styles. We're not going to talk about 80s pop culture so much, but we'll be talking gear, studio equipment, tips and tricks for producers and also about developments in the scene. So if you're a synth music producer yourself or you're a dedicated fan of the featured artist, you don't want to miss this, for sure. Today's featured artist is Brian Hazard of Color Theory, and I'm sure if you're into Synthwave, you'll also know Color Theory. Brian started his recording career already in 1994, which is the Stone Age for today's Synthwave generation. I'm going to talk with Brian right after some Color Theory music. So this is Crystal, one of Color Theory's latest and finest singles. And you might be interested to know that Brian entered the very top of the Synthwave Submit Hub charts with it. So here's Crystal. Crystal blade 
Today I have the huge, huge pleasure to welcome Brian Hazard of Color Theory. Brian, it's such an honor for me to welcome you as the very first guest on the show. It's just so cool to have you. I am very honored to be your first guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I know that people want to hear you talk and not me. But I just have to tell you how I discovered your music with uh, Color Theory a few years ago. You know, I've listened to the whole synthwave thing up and down. And uh, one night I was sitting in the living room listening to music again. And someone from the family came in and said, so you're listening to one of those uh, synth guys again. And I remember saying, yeah, but I mean, this one is really, really special. Listen to how much care he puts <laughs> into everything and how good the production sounds and what great lyrics there are and how <laughs> awesome he sings. This one is real perfectionist and basically i must say that impression never changed i have become a fan of your music and color theory really has become one of my very favorite projects in the scene so when and how did this extraordinary care and the kind of will to perfection develop in you well that's a very generous take <laughs> thank you yeah i uh I guess that perfectionism has been a disease that I've slowly been recovering from. Um, yeah, I mean, back on my very first album, I guess I still had the instinct, but I didn't have the means to execute that perfectionism because back then, when it finally came time to record my album, I rented a DAT machine for the weekend and I had to get it back by Monday or else I was going to pay extra. So I laid down the album in a weekend. But since then... Um, Yeah, I've really honestly kind of struggled with uh, being too perfectionistic. My album in 2016 took uh, six years to make, and that was too long. But um, but since then, as you know, I've uh, st started up on Patreon. I've been there for five and a half years, and every single month for those five and a half years, I have produced a brand new song for patrons. And so, yeah, so I've been able to be a little less precious about every song, just kind of knowing that if this one isn't, you know, the best that it possibly could be, then there's going to be another one to follow next month. But what never um, ceases to amaze me is the degree of your organization, your effectiveness and efficiency in your work. And um, if you'd like to break it down, your love of order, I would say. It's amazing to me that such emotional and really hmm. touching music comes out of it because um, perfectionist types uh, often tend to convey a certain, uh, well, let's call it aloofness <laughs> in their music. Sure. You don't. How do you manage to, to keep the emotional aspect up? Well, that's, wow, that's a tough question. I don't know. I, I just kind of do what I do. And I guess it goes back to having this big catalog of ideas that, you know, it's it's not like I'm kind of straining for something to come up with because I've got just a backlog of all sorts of possible song titles and lyrical ideas that stretch back for at least a decade. So I guess, I guess there's always a well for me to draw from that has some sort of personal connection to me that I, you know, can, can talk about and expand on. So I'm not really struggling to come up with a subject for each new song. And is it right that you basically don't use any hardware instruments, if I'm informed correctly? I, yeah. I think you wrote me that you had only owned one actual synthesizer in your entire life. Uh, why did you turn away from the hardware after that? Well, so that's, I may have not 
They explained it very correctly. So it it's true that for okay. now, <laughs> yeah. So so for the past, uh, let's see, ever since Color Theory presents Depeche Mode in two thousand three, mm-hmm. after that I've been entirely soft since. Before that, I had uh, a Yamaha AN1X, and actually that Depeche Mode tribute album was entirely done on the Yamaha AN1X, which was an analog modeling synthesizer, I think they call it. Yeah, and before that, I did have, you know, my early stuff, I did have physical synths because soft synths didn't exist, um, so there was no way around it. Uh, I, I had, let's see, a Roland JV880. Um I had, yeah, yeah, I had, I'm trying to, I'm blanking on the name. I had a rack mount um, percussion device. Maybe it was one of the Elisis ones. It just had a ton of sounds. Um, So I had that and I had sample cell. I guess that doesn't count. It was a DigiDesign. I don't know if you're familiar with Sample Cell. It was like 2300 bucks for this sampler, basically. Wow. And I used it on my second album. I didn't get much use out of it, but that's about it. I mean, and of course I had since before I started making Color Theory albums, I had a Korg M1. Uh-huh. And when, when that first came out, that was when I was with my band called European White Disco. And so we were actually performing and I had the M1 and... Um, before I, you know, it's really sad. I can't remember the name of my very first synth. It was, it was a Korg also, and I believe it was FM, but I don't remember the name. It wasn't particularly exciting. Should be the DW8000, 6000. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I remember, Mm -hmm. I remember back then I had that keyboard and it sounded cool, but I was hearing like maybe Jupiter kind of sounds like Roland stuff that I thought sounded a lot cooler. Like, and so my, that FM synth really didn't kind of capture the, the Depeche mode kind of sound that I wanted. Yeah. Uh, how were your experiences with the JV880? Um, I mean, all the people who had one say it's it was pure horror, <laughs> only problems. <laughs> And all the people who didn't have one said, oh, it, it's a dream, <laughs> a dream synth. Yeah. So what was your perception? I, I didn't have any real frame of reference. Um you know, to say it was good or bad. I do remember, I mean, I, I loved it. It was my primary synth. Um, but I do remember I had one kind of silly, <laughs> silly tech support incident. I actually, like, I think I called in and I talked to a guy there and I complained that the bass sounds didn't have enough bass. I remember. <laughs> and, and he was, you know, he was trying to humor me. He's like, I haven't heard that one before, which which is is ridiculous. If you go back to my very first album, I have a song called Subterranean that was very obviously inspired by Depeche Mode's See You. And it has way too much bass. It's like super boomy. So, um, But yeah, it was a great instrument. I like the, uh, let's see, the percussion sounds, the drum sounds were, I'm not that super stoked on. Like the the snares were kind of thin and I don't know, they have this kind of lame sound to them. So that, uh, that wasn't the best, but overall for, you know, I was doing a lot of strings and stuff and vibraphone and it was pretty cool. Okay, so did you already say why you turned away from hardware just for... Um... Oh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, just, well, yeah, because because hardware is a pain in the ass. I mean, there wasn't... 
There, there's, I mean, I know we differ on this, but I don't think there's any benefit unless you're talking about the tactile benefit to your creativity of being able to access all the knobs and sliders as you're working. I mean, I can see a benefit there, but as far as the sound quality, I, I really don't think there's any real good reason to um, to go hardware, especially when the kind of synths that I use, you know, like Diva and Zebra and Omnisphere, there's no real analog in the physical realm for those analog, pun intended. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I think those synths are really amazing. Something like Omnisphere, I mean, I've barely even begun to explore how deep that instrument is, and it's way more powerful than any hardware I've ever owned. So we're already back to today's um, uh, situation in your studio. And basically, we can say that you only use software now. Yes. But uh, in the end, the color theory sound is is based to a large extent on the basic waveforms, I would say, like sine, square, triangle, saw, white noise. So why do you so rarely use wavetables, granular, or I don't know, crazy things, just more digital sounding stuff? Um, It sounds a little inconsequent to me because you're um, only operating with uh, software synth, but uh, you Mm -hmm. are using sounds that sound very analog to some yeah well i guess that's just the sound i grew up loving i i haven't found a wavetable synth that i really you know what though live has one built in mm-hmm. in the most recent editions um that's supposed to be really amazing i think it's something about the way that the you know it, it's almost like a sampler the way that it's combining sounds and uh, I don't know. I think with the kind of subtractive synthesis, my brain totally understands how it works. And even with FM synthesis, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a little tricky, but I basically know how it works. But with the wavetable stuff, mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels, it feels like a sampler inside a synth. I just don't connect with it quite as readily. Um, and part of it is because I, I really don't take the time to learn my synths inside and out. Like I know what all the knobs do and I understand the routing, but if you know if you said, "Hey Brian, I want you to make me, you know, a really cool brass patch right now." Yeah. I I would have trouble. I might be able to do it. I'd probably do better with a string patch, but I you know, I'm much better off finding some kind of cool sounds and maybe I'm going to adjust the, you know, the filter cutoff or the release or, you know, that we've talked about the key follow to, you know, to even out the dynamics or something like that. But I just don't really get my hands dirty. And then wavetable is just the uh, adds a layer of unfamiliarity on top of that, that makes it a little more, a little less accessible for me. So I don't know. That's why I stick with what I got. I see. So, of course, you don't have to give away any secrets here. <laughs> but um, if you would be asked by me, what's your most important gear and software you regularly use in the studio? What would you say? I mean, you've already mentioned Diva mm-hmm. and a few other uh, synths, but but maybe also um, some other parts of your studio infrastructure, which is uh, so crucial to you that you would say, I'd never give this away. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's you. You know, I'm pretty back to basics when it comes to my um, the way I approach audio. So the stuff that I use all the time are the FabFilter plugins. So FabFilter Pro Q3, FabFilter Pro C2, FabFilter Pro DS, 
FabFilter Pro L2, and that's about it. And um, we've talked about reverbs. I, I, you know, I'm still using Crystalline, but I keep going back to Valhalla, Valhalla Vintage Verb, and Valhalla Shimmer. Sometimes mm-hmm. um, those are pretty much the only ones I use, unless I'm doing something that is not purposely 80s and in which case I'll pull out maybe a Valhalla Room or Valhalla Plate. I own all those. Uh, I use the built-in delay. Like I I own the FabFilter delay. I think it's called Timeless 3 is the latest one and it is really cool and I wouldn't know how to use like half of it and so I end up going back to the live uh, default. There's a they call it an audio device instead of a plugin. It's called Echo. And that is actually a big part of my vocal sound. So it hits the vintage verb and then usually hits Echo also. And what Echo does really nicely is there's just a reverb dial for the delay return. So you can use their built-in reverb instead of routing it back to your regular vocal reverb. So I usually do that. It's just a really kind of easy setup and I like the sound of it. I don't know what else, what else do I use in my production? I use Melodyne to edit vocals, especially when I have doubles or um, like a recent song, I had three part harmony with two, two voices on each part, which is kind of a nightmare, but getting all those lined up is really, it's important to me, right? That, that the, um, the notes begin and end at the same time that, Mm -hmm. that everything is just really tight and I find that for most people they're going to use something like you know auto-tune or Melodyne within their DAW or uh, some of the DAWs now have the stuff built in like Cubase has what is it Flex or is that Logic Um, for me I prefer to do that in a standalone application so Melodyne has a standalone one where I can do all the different vocal parts at once and they're all stacked I just find that a lot easier. So that's, you know, I'll track vocals, I'll comp the vocals, and then I'll spit out all the vocal takes and make a separate pass to edit out all the little mouth noises that (laughs) naturally come about when you record, which is not, yeah. Yeah, as you're very familiar with, which is not very fun. It's not fun at all, but you know what? I I was remastering one of my um, albums Mm -hmm. adjustments recently and there are a lot of little mouth noises that mm-hmm. that drive me crazy now that I guess I didn't notice. But anyway, so then it goes to Melodyne and then finally back into the the project. So that's about it. That was a really long-winded way to answer your question, but I don't I can't think of any other essential things. I mean, honestly, the only thing I couldn't do without in that process is Melodyne. Everything else I've done it before just as a challenge. I could mm-hmm. record uh, and create a song just with the stock plugins in Ableton and it comes out okay. So it can be done. I just I just think the FabFilter stuff is cleaner and it's what I'm used to. I find it interesting that you don't mention a master keyboard because, mm. uh, for example, myself, I use the K2000 Kurzweil, which I own for many, many years, still as my master keyboard because I feel it, it just has the best keypad. Mm. And I, I feel like I can really control uh, the amount of velocity and so on with playing on the K2000 much better than on other synthesizers. And if I look mm-hmm. at the photos of your studio, which you can see on Facebook and so on uh, and on your w- website, I think you have a piano 
keypad. Is that right? I mean, a weighted um, mm -hmm. weighted keypad. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned controlling the velocity. So I have a um, a, Rol a Roland. I think it's A five hundred Pro. I think is the full title, but um, it's it's a forty nine key keyboard right in front of me behind my computer keyboard. Yeah, and. That has really nice control, but honestly, half the time I find myself going in and just equaling out all the velocities anyway. But if I have to record a piano part, then yes, I'm gonna go to, I have a Roland FP7 that I won in the uh, John Lennon songwriting contest many years back. Mm -hmm. And actually that's how I got Ableton too. I was using Cubase, but I won Ableton. So I went ahead and, and tried it out and fell in love. But yeah, the the FP7 serves me really well if I have um, if I have piano parts. But that's about it. And that's yeah. Other than that, I mean, it's just um, you know what I'll plunk out if I'm gonna do vocal warm ups or something. That's it's nice to have a keyboard that produces its own sound, so I don't have to have the computer on. Um, but it doesn't see a whole lot of use. So let's play some music from Brian's early recording years. In 2001, Color Theory released a song called Ponytail Girl that um, in the high times of music file exchange was widely misunderstood to be a new Depeche Mode single. And the song has become a legendary track ever since. <laughs> ever. Ever since, okay. Um, so this is Color Theory at its Depeche Modiest, I think. This is Ponytail Girl. Shows up at her 
Let's make a cut here sure. by um, switching from gear to more, let's say, scene-related stuff, <laughs> if I can <laughs> say so. Uh, so, of course, you and I, we are both young at heart, but technically <clears throat> we have been on the stage of life quite a bit longer. And uh, since the days when we made the first recordings, a bit of time has passed and the mm -hmm. circumstances also have changed fundamentally. Yes. And everybody can produce tracks at home in a $500 studio and if you would have wanted all those possibilities in the 1980s and would have wanted to build a studio with all that comparable or much less opportunities I think you would have had to sell your house and your car to get the money together <laughs> so do you see the low threshold entry into music production today um, actually only as an advantage or also as a disadvantage? Well, that's funny you mentioned the easy accessibility. That reminds me, um, we got new phones the other day <laughs> and my daughter <laughs> transferred her old phone over, right, as a new iPhone. And she's like, uh, what's GarageBand? <laughs> Why is this on my phone? <laughs> right, because it, it automatically installs GarageBand and Keynote and pages and the other stuff. So yeah, it's so accessible that, I mean, you don't even need to know what it is and you can still make music. I think, I think the accessibility is, I mean, I don't see a downside to it, honestly. I mean, I think it's wonderful. And, you know, just to think of, mention selling your car and stuff, I mean, seriously, th I remember there in mastering and I could justify this expense because you know, as a full-time mastering engineer, there was a plugin called Algorithmics PEQ Red. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Never. Um, okay. Well, it was $1,800 mm -hmm. for this plugin that they send to you on its own dongle. And it was a one megabyte file. 
Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> you could have almost paid, you know, paid by the dollar for each bit mm-hmm. that <laughs> in the code. And yeah, it's just ridiculous. And I mean, I would wait too forever for this thing to process, but it really sounded fantastic, you know. So it was justified in my case because, you know, I was I was earning a living from it. Yeah, these days you could you could create Anything you want, if you just have a computer, I mean, you could use free software and free plugins and you still got to have, I guess, a, a mic maybe if you're going to sing. But even then, the, the barrier for entry is just ridiculous. But at this point anyway, nobody can mix for you. And I think that's really, you know, where the rubber meets the road, because if you've got a crappy mix, it really doesn't matter how much you, you know, how much you spent on the rest of your gear you're, there's no way to fix that. So, so I, I already had the sneaking suspicion that you would say it's all positive. <laughs> <laughs> But um, sometimes I think to myself, it's on, on the one hand, of course, it's really great that today every Tom, Dick and Harry can put his music on Spotify and um, at least try to inspire a worldwide audience with their music. But maybe that also leads listeners further to an attitude that if suddenly also my neighbor is putting his music on Spotify, it maybe only underlines that I wouldn't want to pay a lot for music because if even he is able to to do it, it can't be such a big deal. Is, is that an attitude which you see like it's spreading today? No, no, I don't. I mean, to, to draw a parallel, it's not like it's not like people are like, I don't want to pay money to go see this movie because my neighbor can put a video on YouTube. You know what I mean? I, I just... <laughs> I just don't, yeah, that I don't really connect with that. I mean, of course, the price of music, if it even has a perceived price anymore, has gone way down to pay 10 bucks a month for, at least in the US, for a Spotify premium subscription and have the entirety of recorded music at your fingertips. So, but... Mm-hmm. I don't think that it reduces maybe the value of the music, but there definitely is a problem with always grabbing onto what's new and not really taking time to digest or get to know music. Now music is turning into, you know, it used to be four or five minute songs. Now it's like three minute song, two minutes, 20 seconds. Um, we've lost the bridge like songs don't have bridges anymore i mm. i find that as far as being a storyteller it's not really possible to to tell a story where something is different from the beginning of the song to the end of the song you know like just a dumb example we're at the gym this morning and brian adams summer of 69 was playing and that's my um my in-laws that's like their song because that's when um you know Uh, that's when their son was born. And, and, you know, the last verse is about now it's this and this and how things have changed. And you just, you don't see that anymore. Like now when I write a song, it, it tends to be two verses and three choruses. And I'm just trying to capture a single moment in time. I, I do think that that is a fundamental change in the way that that music is received and created. And I'm not sure it's all for the good. It's not necessarily bad, mm-hmm. but um, but it certainly is different. So what do you think? How many people actually realize what an amount of days and weeks of effort it is to produce a really well-produced three-minute track? Oh, yeah. I, I 
Well, you know, there's an argument to be made that people know more now than they did before, right? Because they, they see all the little TikTok videos where people are laying down the tracks separately, yeah. stacking them on top of each other. Um, what they don't see, of course, is all the different takes and throwing out you know, three quarters of them and, and um, you know, the the real dirty, boring. Work. Yeah, right. <laughs> they don't see that. Yeah. But I think there is an appreciation, you know, when you can when you can buy logic and it has like professional songs that you've heard of before, like those sessions built in and you can actually see every track that that went into the production. I, I do think there is a higher level of awareness overall. But yeah, I there, there is still a sense that music is disposable because it just keeps coming out at such a relentless pace, even from individual artists, right? Like, I mean, here, here I am putting out mm. a track every month and even having trouble just having, like, I've got too many tracks for months, you know what I mean? To, Cause I don't want to release more than one a month. Um, so there is kind of an onslaught and it does give a sense that it's um, it's quite literally a song of the month, you know, instead of some timeless album that maybe took five years, you know, of silence from the band resurfacing. It's just, yeah, it's a very different experience. So while we're on the subject, what makes a professionally produced music production for you? What's the essential um, elements of it. Hmm. I mean, to put it in different words, what elements of a production differentiate a professional production from an, let's say, amateurish production? Yeah, that's that's a little tricky to say, but you can definitely, I mean, let's start with the obvious. I mean, if the, I'm thinking now as a Submit Hub curator, right, because I have my playlist that I, I field probably about 30 to 40 submissions a week and the things you know the kind of the bare minimum is your vocal needs to be essentially in tune and many people that bar is a little too high and you know it's funny i i got one this last week where it's not that the vocal was out of tune it was in tune it was just in a different key than the music It was, you know, I actually, I try to be as polite as I can, but I was like, uh, the song is in a different key. Can't you hear <laughs> mm -hmm. that? You know? So anyway, that's obviously the bare minimum, but past that, the thing that I noticed that again is probably uniquely me is when, um, the music is not mastered well, you know, either they're using an algorithmic mastering service, which sometimes has kind of telltale, uh, telltale sound about it, uh, or they're they're trying to do it themselves. And what tends to happen there is that the dynamics of the song get inverted because they're compressing their master so hard. And they might say, oh, I, I only compressed it 3 dB or something like that, which is huge, right, in, in a mastering sense. What happens is that the quiet parts aren't being compressed as much and they seem to shoot up in volume mm -hmm. and then the loud parts where the drums are in and the bass are in or maybe there's some heavy instrumentation the compressor clamps down on that and so those those parts that are supposed to sound the biggest end up sounding the smallest and I do hear that quite a bit so that I would say that's my second kind of objective criteria for a professional production Past there, I don't know. I think we all have a sense of what 
sounds like a good mix or an amateur mix. And it, it may be hard to kind of put that into words, but you know it when you hear it. Also, the, the habit of listening has changed, I mean, over the decades, because um, I would say in the 90s, if you had such hard compressed music like you hear it um, oftentimes these days, where it's really pumping, you know, they would have said it's damaged. They would have said it's a, it's a ruined mix. But today it's, it's I mean, it's in fashion. Well, the, the irony is that in the 90s, right, that's when we really had the, uh, the loudness wars and yeah. things weren't compressed to where they were pumping, but they were limited so hard that they had that ah, sure. distorted edge to them. So yeah, it's I, I'm glad we're past that. I mean, that that helps immensely. And, you know, even now that that kind of standard has, has um, you know, loosened up, I still find that there are some tracks that I master kind of for CD or for Bandcamp that suffer from the um, from the limiting. Whereas when I can, you know, pull it down to negative fourteen lufts for Spotify, it just suddenly can really breathe and sound a lot more open. Mm -hmm. Now, in between, let's get back to some music again. This is from the album Adjustments that was in the making for six years, as Brian has just mentioned. It is one of the greatest tracks of this excellent Color Theory album, and it's called Slot Machine, and it sounds just like that. Eventually, just have a 
like a slot machine. Just as I start to wonder When payoffs are far in between We can't shake the spell we're under Then like a slot machine It's cherries and bells We're like a slot machine So let's do another cut here and let's move on to something more, um, I don't know, technical. <laughs> what did you... Yeah, more, uh, more technical than gear? Come on. <laughs> we've, we've left the gear already a while ago. We were talking scene yeah. stuff, you know. So <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I can remember in the late 2000s, more and more people were sitting in the subways listening to music through their cell phone speakers. Mm, I can tell yes. you what I thought back then. I thought, okay, this is the end of the world as I love it. <laughs> These blaring little speakers everywhere and all the kids getting used to it. So what were your thoughts as a producer um, back then? Well, I, I didn't. So number one, we don't have a subway. Um, so <laughs> okay. I, I didn't really have, so have take the, the same bus, experience. Take the bus instead. Yeah. Oh, we, we don't do that. No. no. Have it, you've heard uh, Nobody Walks in LA, right? You heard that song. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't really have that kind of experience where people were listening on cell phones. It, it wouldn't really bother me. It seems like today, you know, today people are listening hi-fi. Like even at the gym, people have those big old Apple, I don't even know what they're called, the Apple headphones that go over your ear um, yep. and Powerbeats Pro. So people are listening uh, some pretty hi-fi um, you know, mm -hmm. devices these days, but yeah, I don't know. In the two thousands, um, it's funny. I didn't have the same kind of experience. I'm not sure what to do with that. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be too negative. And of course you're right regarding headphones, but, um, regarding speakers, I would say that we're in a kind of a backward evolution in terms of audio yeah. technology. I mean, in the, in the 1950s, sixties, the one speaker systems were oh. the norm and hardly anyone could afford or even saw the need for 
for a multi-way speaker system yeah. and uh, of course the, the stereo was was uh, developing only since the late 50s early 60s and so on then in the 80s we had the tower of hyphy components and uh, whoever had the fattest system had the biggest data symbol at home and then in the in the 2000s it was dolby 5.1 and the home theater stuff and since then it was drastically backward evolution to a one speaker setup everybody's having those uh, smart speakers at home or uh, they have the speakers that you can connect to your um, uh, mobile phones so would you say is it evolution in reverse yeah the little bluetooth things by the pool yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point because i i do remember when 5.1 was really kind of the thing and i got you know i, I bought a new receiver and i set up my um You know, I bought speakers specifically to listen to music in 5.1, and I bought one of the Depeche Mode CDs, or I guess it wouldn't even be a CD. It would, would have been a DVD. I forgot even what you call it. And I sat and I listened to it and I thought, oh, that's cool. I wouldn't have thought to put this, you know, behind me, or I wouldn't have thought to put that element over here. I don't know. I got over it really quick because if you're going to listen to 5.1 sound, you have to just sit there yeah, and you, right. you can't even turn your head, you know? So I, it was just too tedious and I went back to stereo and fortunately I didn't spend the money to, um, to outfit my studio for 5.1 because there was a time where I really thought, you know, 5.1 mastering is going to be in super high demand and I need to be ready for this and my software can do it. Um, fortunately, I didn't have to do that. But, you know, as far as the one speaker things, I mean, yeah, on the one hand, it's mono. On the other hand, like I have the very first Amazon Echo mm -hmm. that they sent me sent me for super cheap because they were just trying it out. And it sounds pretty good. I mean, it sounds, you know what I mean? As far as like low end extension and, and I've never had one of those Bluetooth speakers. I mean, honestly, for me, none of that affects me because I'm either making music in the studio and listening, you know, on, on the big monitors or if I'm listening for pleasure, I'm running and I've got my Power Beats Pro and those extend pretty low as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I'm a happy camper, um, <laughs> you know, as far as, as other people perceiving it. I mean, I remember when I had my very first car and I wanted a hi-fi audio system, I took my speakers from my bedroom and this was a Volkswagen bug, not to make us sound older than we already do. Okay. But there was a, a little area behind the back seat where I just literally threw the speakers back in and pointed them up, kind of figuring that they would bounce off the back windshield to my ears. <laughs> and and that sounded amazing to me. You know, I didn't... So when you're not an audio professional, like you don't... You know what I mean? You don't really tune into those things. You are, you are focused on the, you know, the melody and the song itself. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is kind of a minimum. Even a total amateur can tell when, you know, the song isn't professional like we talked about before. When there's something off, then you, you don't even give it a chance. You're just like, no, this is amateur. Like, this is not you know i've got better things to be listening to but in how far does it influence the demands of the artists um, who have you produce or master their music do they say um, i want the master to be sounding good on a one speaker system on an amazon smart speaker i've never had anybody you know ask me about that specifically i guess if yeah believe it or not yeah if somebody had said that they were they were concerned or maybe they had something mastered by me and they said they played it on you know their bluetooth speaker and it didn't sound good I would 
take the simple step of just checking for mono compatibility. But other than that, I mean, I think the thing is like all these different quote unquote inferior audio systems, they all sound different in their own way. And, and they're, they're different in unpredictable ways. So uh-huh. I think there's no point in trying to optimize a recording for a particular, you know, like I could say, hey, I want this thing to sound great on laptop speakers. If if you've got this mix that's got this re-space, like it's just not gonna sound good on laptop speakers. There is nothing I can do in mastering to make it sound good on laptop speakers. Like you would almost need to begin at the arrangement phase with that in mind. And it might sound good on one laptop and then Apple comes out with, you know, a new laptop and it's got cooler speakers and I just don't see the point. So so my philosophy is always make the mix sound the best that it can on the best speakers that you've got mm-hmm. and just trust that it will translate to other systems. And if you don't, don't even worry about it because once you start checking on, you know, five different systems, all you're doing is is hearing how those systems are are different. It's not really telling you anything about your music. Well, that's interesting because it uh, it, it puts the the old Michael Jackson strategy mm-hmm. into uh, conflict <laughs> because it was told that Michael Jackson tried out like uh, a gazillion of different devices mm-hmm. uh, to really make sure that his music always sounded good on a Walkman or on a small kitchen radio or on a big hi-fi system. And I know that many, many people still do this until this very day. Sure, yeah, the NS10s. I mean, yeah, people people will check on crap speakers. But, but the question to me is, if something sounds great on the mains and then it doesn't sound good on the little speakers, like, what do you do about it? Like, if you, you know, anything you do to make it sound better on those little speakers is probably going to have a negative effect on the mains if you're making it sound as good as it can on the mains. So I just don't see the sacrifice as being worth it. Like, I've always thought of my music as at least trying to be for audiophiles, ultimately. I mean, I'm not saying it lives up to that standard, but that that would be the crowd that I'm aiming for because that's how I am. You know, I sit down with headphones and I really want to take in the music. I don't listen to music in the background. I mean, I can't listen to music while I'm like reading or doing work. That's just not the role that music has for me. So if I'm listening to music, it's it's getting, you know, pretty much my full attention. Obviously, if I'm running, I'm not crashing into things. But other than that, it's getting my full attention and I want it to sound the best that it possibly can on full range speakers. Yeah. Great. Understood and accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was easy. (laughs) So uh, let's talk about a different facet of your um, uh, professional life. You're not only a musician and producer, but you're also a podcaster yourself. You've got um, the Synthwave Top 10 podcast. I I myself listen to it regularly and I really enjoy listening to it because um, you always get a, a bunch of really good music there, really well produced produced and also your comments are always really nice. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, how did you come up with the idea for your Synthwave Top 10 podcast or uh, put in different words, what was your basic motivation to set it up? That's a great question. I don't, I don't really remember. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't remember how I came up. I think, I think it was more, you know, actually, I think it came from reading this is going to sound really odd and you may not know what I'm talking about, but Russell Brunson, Brunson, Branson, Brunson has three books, kind of marketing books. They're, they're not 
about music at all. They're just um, mm-hmm. kind of about brand building. And for him anyway, his podcasting just became a huge you know, driver of his business. And he stresses how important that is. And I think I had toyed with the idea of podcasting for a while, but I think, as you know, when we've talked about this, my voice just does not hold out. And over the course of a recording, you know, hopefully not too much on this one, but generally if you go to the beginning where I start talking, fast forward to the end, you can hear a distinct change in my voice. So I I guess I always felt like that's not the thing for me. And I definitely didn't want to do interviews. It just sounded like too much hassle. So I think the motivation was, hey, I've got this, I'm putting all this work already into curating this playlist. And it really is different, I think, than pretty much any synthwave playlist out there. Like most of the synthwave playlists are run by artists. And you can tell because You know, they have five of the first 10 songs on the playlist. So clearly the goal in that case is not to make the best playlist that it can be. It's it's mostly about Mm self-promotion. And so I wanted to do something. I mean, of course, my track is the first track in the playlist usually, and I'm promoting it with ads to try to bring more listeners in. But after that point, it is really just trying to make a great listening experience. I think about how the songs, you know, sit next to each other and try to, you know, just the same way I would with the track list of an album. And um, sure. So anyway, what I'm saying is it takes me a lot of time. I take it very seriously. And the top 10 podcast, I think, is a way to get a little more value out of that time investment, right? Because the top 10 comes from the songs that I pick for the playlist. Mm -hmm. Those are all new releases. So there's always, you know, there's always a new well to draw from every month. It's just kind of a fun way to highlight both the playlist and some of those artists that really captivated me uh, that time around. And of course, you know, it is a little bit self-promotional too. I do include one of my songs on the playlist as a um, dishonorable mention, which by the way, I have a lot of trouble saying the word dishonorable. And I usually have to, <laughs> I usually have to re-record it um, two or three times. Anyway, yeah, so it, it does have a little bit of a promotional value for me as well, but ultimately I think it's just a way to, um, to build on the playlist and bring a little more attention to the scenes and the artist in it. And by scene, I mean, I, I think I take it as a little broader than most, like I'm not a synthwave purist. Anything that kind of has an 80s influence and a synth foundation works for me, whether it sounds like, you know, 90s synthy pop or if it sounds like The Midnight. I mean, those all work. And so I want to highlight it. And um, yeah, so the podcast just seemed like a natural extension of that. So that's the ideal um, shift to the next question, because I was recently promoting my own single release, as you know. And of course, I've also been around at SubmitHub, mm-hmm. uh, where you can address the playlist curators. And one of those guys who rejected my track justified it with the general information that what I had just submitted wasn't synthwave at all, but music with synthesizers. Aha. So <laughs> in, in that very moment, I thought that in regard to your Synthwave Top 10 podcast, you must get statements like that all the time by the so-called purists. Is that right? You know, I don't, I actually don't get complaints from listeners about that. You would think, right? But um, I, I don't get that. And when, when I try to point out that somebody is off target with genres, you know, when I'm curating, I'll usually 
say that I'm looking for more obvious 80s elements. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. that to me, I think is a little more understandable than just trying to say, oh, it's not synthwave. I'm looking for something that kind of really hooks me into the 80s. And if it's not there, just because it's maybe retro doesn't, you know, like disco is retro, but it's not necessarily 80s. So that's kind of kind of how I usually phrase it. But isn't it strange that there are quite a few people in the scene who would rather like Synthwave to stay a more or less uh, static genre? Always the same kind of sounds, yeah, BPM purists. rates, uh, typical bass patterns, and so on. I I mean, I really find that kind of fascinating. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't love a, a music genre which is which just stays the same all the time. Yeah, it, it's a tricky one, though, right? Because if it's based on a period in in history and a sound from a period in history. Yeah. And that his- history presumably is not going to change. I can understand the motivation, but I'm pretty bored of, you know, the the same old sounds. And so I will tend to pass on those kind of productions unless it offers something really new. Well, I mean, to me, Synthwave is primarily, I would say, a nostalgia-driven genre. And uh, while you and me have actually experienced the 80s ourselves and maybe even have a reason for being nostalgic about that time, I find it really interesting that there is a much younger generation out there who is apparently feeling the nostalgia as well. Although they have never experienced the 80s themselves. Yeah. How would you explain that phenomenon? Yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean. Like I have heard Synthwave described as being more 80s than the 80s were. Absolutely. <laughs> And yeah, there, there definitely is a sense of that. And I mean, with, you know, you look at Stranger Things, that kind of is the same way too. Like it just takes certain elements of the 80s and highlights them. And it, it does paint it in a little nicer, I don't know, <laughs> in a nicer light than maybe the reality was. You know, we don't, the, rea- the reality was we mm-hmm. were practicing, you know, drills in our classroom for nuclear attacks and getting under oh, our desk really? as if that okay. was going to, yeah, maybe you didn't have that. We we literally had, I think it was a different kind of siren noise and you were supposed to get under your desk as if that was going to make any difference at all. Oh, wow. I thought that was like the 50s or 60s <laughs> in the US when they did these uh, duck and cover strange films, you know. Yeah, well, we had duck and cover for earthquakes, right? Because we get earthquakes here all the time. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, okay so, but yeah. not for atomic bombs or... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in Germany, I think we've, we just expected to be destroyed in the very first second because Smart. we were so much in between. Yes. <laughs> well, that that's, yeah, that's intelligent. But I mean, I remember reading The Hunt for Red October. You were always kind of living under the shadow of that. And um, yeah, that's whatever. Maybe I was just a little too anxious in high school. But <laughs> but in a strange way, it also reflected in the pop culture. I mean, if you look at, the, at many mm. films uh, like Rocky... Um, uh, was it four or was it five? The, with a where he, I think it was three. Where he fought a, three a, against, against the Russian Dolph guy. Lundgren, you know the the Russian fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was four, but I know, I'm not sure. And also, of course, those well, uh, like like Red Heat and all the all the movies of that time. It was also a fun aspect about it. Or war games. I mean, there were iconic movies yeah. of that era of dealing with the threat of nuclear destruction. It, it's a bit strange thinking about that. Yeah, and you're right. It was Rocky Four. Oh, Rocky okay. Three was with Mr. Mr. See T. See what a Rocky expert I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, because right, Rocky Two was Apollo Creed, where they both went down at the same time, and then Rocky Three, yeah, is Mr. T, and Rocky Four is Dolph Lundgren, and I don't know if I saw Rocky Five. Is that yeah? But yeah, it's yeah, it was very uh, very <laughs> d- different kind of aesthetic. And you're right, there were it was it was in the pop culture as well as just something that we were a little terrified of. Okay, so let's check if I have any questions left, but I think we're almost through. Yeah, right. What? I think yeah, sure. I've promised an hour of an interview and we're almost uh, through with yeah. an hour, but I wow. have Good five job. five quick questions left. And I would okay. um I would ask you for five short answers, please. <laughs> Good luck. So no, it's feel, just the... feel free to edit them out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, we've learned that you um, are uh, mainly into software synthesizers. So um, the mm-hmm. next question, of course, is f- for you software related. If you could only keep one synthesizer, which one would it be and why? That would have to be Omnisphere. It's just the most, it can do anything. It can replace a rack of keyboards. So that that's an easy call. All right. Great. What a short answer. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. Yeah. I could have just done it in one word. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next one. Which band or musical project has impressed you the most in the last 12 months? I'm going to be silent for a while. Um, 12 months. Wow. Uh, you could also say a year. Yeah, I could. I could. I'm trying to think of what I actually listened to. I mean, I listened the most, uh, the things that I probably listened to the most for fun are the Charlie XCX album and the Mother Mary album of all things. Um, so Mother Mary's on Italians Do It Better. Um, uh-huh. And yeah, those two albums have probably impressed me the most. If I had to pick one, it would have to be Charlie XCX because I just love the production. Um, You know, the songs don't necessarily do that much for me, but the production I just find really inspiring. So next one. What would you like your fans to associate with you and your work? I don't know. That's wow. I don't have an answer. Nothing is appearing to me. I, because I guess I want my music to kind of be its own thing and not to to be associated with anything else in particular. Does that make sense? So, and you will love the next question because what would you like your fans to associate a little less with you and your work? Depeche Mode. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Almost a one uh, word answer. Great. Yes, that was an easy one. What do you think will be the most important change in the music scene in the next five years? Uh, I think that um, that rights, this is a really boring answer. I think that rights collection is finally going to catch up with the internet, with Web 3.0 and the whole thing, mm-hmm. to where we won't have to register our songs with hundreds of different societies and the MRC and, you know, and maybe get paid for some of it in six months to a year and not get paid for other parts of it. So I think, you know, I'm I am not on board at all with crypto, but I do think that part of that is is going to at least connect artists more directly with the royalties that they earn. Uh, that would be a good change. Yes, very much so. 
All right. So we are ending on a high note. Yay. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Brian. It was such a pleasure to be able to talk to you and to discuss all the questions which I had. And um, I think it's a, it's a worthy first episode. And um, well, so cool to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Likewise. No, it's definitely my pleasure. And yeah, hopefully uh, this will be a classic that people will go back to time uh, and time again. I'm for absolutely <laughs> I sure. Say, I say that because, yeah, because I, I know from looking at my podcast stats, I think what people tend to do is they listen to the latest episode and then if they like it, they get invested, they go back to the first one. So that's my experience anyway. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Anytime. So, tell you what, that was it. That was the interview with Brian Hazard of Color Theory. I am Rainer, also known as UAP. And if you don't mind, I'll play my own new single release as the very last dance in this first episode of Let's Talk Synth Seriously. It's called Talita. And it was a collaboration project with Katie Tisch, brilliant singer-songwriter from the USA. I greatly recommend to visit her Spotify profile. So goodbye, hear you next time. And now this is Talita by UAP and Katie Tisch. <laughs>